Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we are making our way through the gospel of Matthew, and we are spending extended time on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Matthew chapter 5. Look with me at verse 33, and we'll read 33 to 37. And this is the word of the Lord, Matthew 5, 33. Jesus said, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in a world that is so full of lies, deceit, and even we can look into our own heart or into our past and see where we have been guilty of lies or deception, God, You are the God of truth. Lord Jesus, You say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We worship the God who is the truth. And so, God, I pray that we as Your people would reflect that in our speech, that we would be people of the truth, that our words would be full of truth, that we would hate the thought of being intentionally deceptive or bold-faced lying to other people. God, help us to be people who love the truth as you love the truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it's good when we're going through a section slowly to, again, zoom out and try to get the bigger picture to remind ourselves the flow of thought of what is going on in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Look with me back at Matthew chapter 5. You remember the Beatitudes where he speaks of the humility necessary of being in the kingdom? And then he says, you're salt of the earth and light of the world. You should be different and to show the world the difference through your actions. And then really the thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, is verses 17 to 20. Let me read those for us. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And verse 20 really seems to be a thesis statement for the whole of the sermon. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." And if you remember here, this sets up what Jesus is going to say to give us in the, in the rest of the chapter six different contrasts. Just look with me here. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not murder. But verse 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And he does the same thing with lust. You've heard it said not to commit adultery, but I say, if you look with lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. And then he speaks of divorce. Our passage, he speaks of oaths. You have heard it was said, but I say to you. Verse 38, he speaks of retaliation, and then verse 43, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
what is Jesus doing in this section of the sermon? What He's doing is six times in the rest of chapter 5, He's taking the way the Pharisees and the scribes had misconstrued Old Testament ideas and added their own twist on them and their own human tradition on them, and they had actually lived in a way that was ironically violating God's commands by looking like they were very carefully trying to keep them. And so what Jesus says is, listen, for anyone who is to be included in my kingdom, your day-to-day life and your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees because their righteousness is no righteousness. Their righteousness is hypocrisy. Their righteousness is not actual obedience to me. It's actually a deceptive way of going about uh, God's commands. And so he says, your, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees or you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me just say here, in case you're a visitor, I am not saying, nor is Jesus saying for one moment, that we are saved by our righteousness. In chapter 4, He says, the kingdom of heaven is being proclaimed, and He says, repent, for the kingdom is near. And the first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, the idea, over their sin. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, when we are confronted with Jesus, the first thing we must do is acknowledge our sin, confess our past moral failing, flee to the cross with nothing to bargain with God with because we are bankrupt and poor in spirit. We have no bargaining power morally. Let me just say here, if you think that your inherent righteousness, your obedience, your morality is strong enough that you could barter with God for heaven, that you could bargain with God with what you've done in your past, the good deeds you've done and the bad deeds you say you've avoided, if you really think you've got enough righteousness to barter with God to gain access to His presence, I want to say you have not yet even begun to understand the beginnings of the message of Christianity. Christianity is only for those who know they are sinful. Jesus said, I came for the, not the righteous, but I came for the sinner because it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But once we have met Jesus, our life is going to change. And the transformation must go beyond that of a true hypocrite like a Pharisee or a tax collector. Our actual life must change to where our righteousness goes beyond their hypocritical righteousness. Don't turn to this passage right now. Just, we don't have time to go there. But in James 5.12, a very similar statement from James. James says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You can hear it. By the way, when you read James, can't you tell he was the brother of Jesus? I mean, they sound extraordinarily similar. If you read the Sermon on the Mount and read the book of James, you go, this sounds like these guys must have known each other. Well, they, they did. Uh, they grew up together. That, that explains why. But yeah, James says something very similar to his older half-brother, Jesus, uh, who says also here that, that we need to beware of taking oaths. Now, I wanna, I'm going to split the sermon into two parts, and we'll have points underneath these two major points. But the first point is simply what Jesus is not saying. And uh, that's the first section of the message. And when I first say it, you may think that I'm just contradicting Jesus, and I I want to be as careful as I can. Nothing in me wants to contradict anything Jesus is saying, but bear with me and hear me out before uh, you react to what I say. So, what Jesus is not saying, even though it may sound like it when you first read the text, I don't think Jesus is opposed to every form of oath-taking or swearing. 
When you read the text, it sounds like he categorically condemns all oaths or all swearing. And I don't think that's what he means. I think he's making a particular point in context. Let me just make a, a, a point here just to start about interpreting the Bible. We, the, a couple of very important principles for all Bible study. You probably know these. Most of you know these. Number one, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. This is of utmost importance. We do not believe the Bible ever contradicts itself. And so we believe that whatever God teaches in any part of Scripture is going to be in agreement with all other parts of Scripture. And so if you read an isolated text and then you make a blanket sweeping statement from that text and it doesn't actually agree with what other texts would say as they shed light on that text, beware. It is very easy for people to do something called theological reductionism, which simply means you take one concept and you absolutize this one thing and you don't let all of Scripture speak to that particular issue, and there are dangers in that. Uh, not, not, not to, you know, just to mention the fact, you know, Quakers, for instance, will never take a, a, an oath in a courtroom setting or anything like that because of this text. And that's, they say, Jesus forbid any kind of oath taking, and so we will just let our yes be yes and our no be no. And there's a, there's a, certain, thing of, 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 uh, there's a certain thing you can admire about that desire, but I, I don't think that's what Jesus is ultimately saying in this passage. Let me give some reasons why. So underneath that main point of what he's not saying, number one, God allowed oaths under specific conditions in Scripture. Just listen to some texts. Leviticus 19.11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Listen to Leviticus 5 verse 4, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt, in any of these, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a sin offering, rash oaths. From the Ten Commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And do you hear the warnings associated with oath-taking in the Old Testament? Don't swear flippantly. Don't swear foolishly. Don't swear using God's name in vain. Don't, don't make a promise with God's name and then violate it. Don't, don't do that. Don't take His name in vain. And yet, in the Old Testament, God Himself takes oaths. Luke 1 mentions the fact that God had sworn an oath to Abraham. Acts 2 says that God had sworn an oath that He would set one of David's descendants on the throne. Now, here, here's the thing. If oath-taking is always wrong then why would God Himself take oaths? Do you remember Genesis 15? It's one of the wonderful passages in the Bible. Do you remember Genesis 15? Abraham says to God, Lord, You promised me a child. I'm still childless. When are you going to fulfill Your promise? The Lord says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you as many uh, uh, children as there are stars in the heavens. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But then Abraham says, but Lord, how do I know You're going to do this? How do I know for sure? And the Lord says, take some animals, cut them in half, make a pathway. Kind of think of the center aisle here in this room. You got animals cut in half. It's very gruesome on both sides going all the way up the row. And you have this little pathway in the middle with blood all over. It was a bloody scene. And God puts Abraham to sleep. And God, through these strange objects, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, walk and move between the pieces of the animals, and God says, I, I, I make a covenant with you, Abraham. I will bring your people back to this land. I will bless you and multiply you. I will be true to my word. God was making an oath. He was making a covenant with Abraham saying, I will not fail to keep my word. 
Hebrews 6 says it like this, and this is about as clear as you can get. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. That always makes me smile. You know, whenever people swear, they swear by something greater than them. God goes, I'm going to have to swear by myself because there is no one else. There is nothing else greater than me that I can swear by. So God swears by his own self, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And then the author says, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. Why? So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. God did not take an oath before Abraham because God is generally unreliable, and so He had to really show that He meant it. God did this because of our weakness, not His weakness. We are the ones that are prone to doubt and wander. We are the ones that need great assurance to truly trust God. And God says, listen, I don't have to take an oath. I don't have to. Everything I say is true, but I'm going to take an oath. I'm going to swear by my own name. Why? Not because I'm unreliable, but to give you absolutely abundant hope that I mean what I say. It's like when Jesus would stand up and say to you, truly, truly, I say to you. You remember that? The the, the literal original word is amen, amen, the word we get amen from. Amen, amen, I say to you. You know, most of us, we say amen at the end of a statement. Someone says something true, we say amen. Jesus starts His statement with amen. He really means what He's going to say, and He doesn't just say it once, He says it twice. Amen, amen. Well, does that mean we don't have to trust Jesus on other times when He doesn't say that? No. What He's saying is, please listen carefully to what I am about to say. You remember on the early morning of Jesus' crucifixion, He was taken before the Sanhedrin. Remember the high priest has Jesus stand before Him? They bring false witnesses. False witnesses contradict each other, lie, they can't even agree. Does Jesus answer the false accusations? He doesn't say a word. He's just totally silent, which stuns everybody. Why isn't this guy defending himself? And then it says this, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, I had to double check this. I looked this up. The word adjure in the original Greek is the word, I put you under an oath. That's what the word means. So, the high priest says, Jesus, I put you under an oath before God. Are you the Christ? And finally, Jesus answers. Why? Because now he's under oath, and Jesus gives the the answer. He says, you have said that I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven, and the high priest tears his cloak. So even Jesus takes an oath in the Gospel of Matthew. So Jesus is not categorically against oaths. You see why Scripture must interpret Scripture. If Jesus submits to an oath and takes an oath in Matthew 26, why would He say it's always a sin to take an oath in Matthew 5? He's not contradicting Himself. Here's what I think is going on in this particular situation. I'll quote one pastor, R. Kent Hughes. He says it like this, "'Oath-taking is permitted, but it is not normally encouraged. In civil life, oath-taking, as in the courtroom, is permitted, and when one does so, he is not uh, sinning against Christ's teaching. Also, on rare occasions, it may be necessary, as it was for Paul. However, oaths are not to be the normal part of our everyday conversation. In normal relations, oaths should never fall from our lips.' 
Kingdom men and women do not need such devices. Their commitment to truthfulness should be evident to all. Jesus was dealing with scribes and Pharisees, and they knew that the Old Testament allowed oaths in certain circumstances and forbid them in others. So what did these hypocritical religious people do? They said, well, there are certain oaths I can make that I'm not bound by, and there are certain oaths I can make that I am bound by, and you almost have to know the secret code to know when I'm really telling the truth and when I'm not. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23 to show you a little bit of what's going on here. While you are turning to Matthew 23, I'll I'll read a quote from, from Don Carson about what the Jewish leaders were doing at this time. In the Jewish code of law called the Mishnah, there is one, who, uh, one, uh, there is one whole tractate given over to the question of oaths. This is a Jewish uh, leader's guide, essentially, at the time, including detailed considerations for when oaths are binding and when they are not. For example, one rabbi says that if you swear by Jerusalem, now listen to this, if you swear by Jerusalem, you are not bound by your vow. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you are bound by your vow. Now, do you see there's a little bit of duplicity going on there? The swearing of oaths thus thus degenerates into terrible rules, which let you know when you can get away with lying and deception and when you cannot. These oaths no longer foster truthfulness, but weaken the cause of truth and promote deceit. Swearing evasively becomes justification for lying. So look, Matthew 23, verse 16. We get a little more detail of what Jesus is really rebuking. Matthew 23, verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, when when we were children, you may have had the experience of someone saying, well, I know I told you that, but I was crossing my fingers, right, when I was doing this. This is like, you know, in second grade territory, and you're like, oh, I didn't know that. And then, wait, I thought, I, thought I, I didn't see that your hands were crossed. I was behind my back. You weren't looking. I had my hand behind my back. I did the little finger cross thing. And you go, oh, man, you got me. You're right. You don't have to do what you said. Oh, you got me. Well, children have that kind of way of doing it. Well, the adult Pharisees were no less childish in the way that they were dealing with the truth. See, the unregenerate heart trying to obey biblical principles, has to manipulate the Bible in order to make themselves look obedient to it. And so if your heart is prone to lie, you have to find a religious way to do it. And the religious way to do it was certain oaths matter and certain oaths do not matter. And Jesus says, listen, if you're going to play that game, how about you just stop taking oaths altogether and just let your yes be yes and your no be no? You see why Jesus is not saying all oath-taking is a sin. 
He's not saying when you go into a courtroom, you can't put your hand on a Bible and say, you know, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. He's not saying when you join the armed forces or whatever it may be, you, you cannot take an oath in that regard. When you're getting married, you take an oath before God and these witnesses. That is not wrong. That is right and good and true. But should oath-taking be a part of everyday conversation that basically is saying, I'm totally untrustworthy unless I take a super special oath about the temple and the gold on the temple I hope not. I hope that our daily speech is such that people can trust what we have to say. So turn back to Matthew 5, and I want to make just a couple of points of application. One of these I'm borrowing from another uh, person. Let's think for a second. And and this is not even a partisan comment, just when when you look at any kind of politics, I don't care who is talking, aren't we just accustomed to the fact that we're getting lied to? over and over by whoever seems to be talking. You, you can just tell. You, you, you often know, like, what is being said right now, I know for a fact is not true, but it's being said as if it were true. And there's no one who seems to really ultimately be immune from this. In fact, I heard one pastor say, if everyone in the world for the next 24 hours told the actual truth the world would seem to be coming apart at its seams because people would not even know how to function anymore if people actually just told the truth. So here's a question. In what ways have you seen and experienced a culture of dishonesty, whether it be at school, at work, in the government, or even tragically at home? Why is it hard to maintain a moral compass in this dishonest culture? Let's beware here. We don't want to leave this sermon pointing the finger at those people. We want to leave pointing the finger at myself, at at my heart, at your heart. That's what we want to be dealing with today. But let's ask honestly, in my life over the last few weeks, months, is the genuine truth what marks my speech? Or if I'm being honest, are there times where even if I'm not bold-faced lying, am I stating things in such a way that a slight exaggeration here of a detail and a slight minimization here of a detail is actually me deceiving you into making me look better than I actually am. See, my guess is in this room, there's not a lot of us in this room, I hope, who just bold-faced go around lying just to their boss or to their you know, r- r- roommate or family member. I hope you're not just bold-faced lying. But I do think that there is a tendency to in ways that seem lesser but are not less deceptive, we can massage the truth and the details in such a way to at the end of the day, we look a little bit better than we do. I can remember a time, to my shame, I remember, uh, this is a number of years ago, I was in class and I had not gotten some grading done and I was behind on it, and a student asked me about whether the grading was done, and instantly what came out of my mouth was untrue. I mean, I'm talking... In Bible class, I'm a Bible teacher. My student asked me, and and the way I said it was factually untrue. And I I was just stunned. I I just, a split second, I said it, I reacted, I said it, and I made made it sound like, uh, I I made it implied that I had graded it, is what it sounded like, by the way I said it, which was my sin just flaring up. And I stopped. And about 20 burning seconds went by of silence, and I just sat there. I was like, you just lied to your student in Bible class, like, this is bad. So about 20 seconds went by, just like burning. I just probably started sweating. And I, I, I said, you know what? What I just said, that's not, that's not what happened. I have not graded the papers yet, and I'm sorry for how I just said that. And we moved on. 
But it's unbelievable. Sometimes in a moment when we are caught off guard, we, we don't, our conscience didn't have time to sort of warn us, and our flesh just pops something out, and the way it is said is simply deceptive. Is that true in our life? And are there areas where we might need to go and repent? Go, go tell someone, what I said was, was not right. You know, someone says, are you going to be at the event? You say, oh, I'm busy. Well, you look at, the, you look, you look at your schedule. You're not that busy. Maybe, but you just don't want to be at the event. And is, your, is what you said even true about the, about the reasoning there? Let, let us beware of times where we, where we say things that simply are not true. When Jesus rebukes the oath-taking, do you notice that they're swearing by objects? Hair on the head? They swear by my head. I don't, what does that even mean? I swear by my head. Jesus goes, are you serious? You can't even make one hair white or black. You're going to swear by your head? I swear by the temple, but not the gold on the temple. I swear by the altar, but not the gift on the altar. And here's what, here's what Jesus is saying. Whatever you swear by is part of God's creation and is connected to God in His name. And so whatever you swear by is connected to God, and therefore to swear by anything God has made is to swear by something under God, which is to swear by God, which is to lie, if you're not telling the truth, right? So he says, when you, when you are speaking, you better understand that whatever you are saying is connected ultimately back to God, and it must be the truth, because we worship a God who is the truth. Second major point of the message, what, what exactly is Jesus getting at? We've gotten at this a little bit, but I want to be more specific here. I can't say this enough, beware of how we might be like the Pharisees, manipulating Scripture in order to look like our sin is not really sinful. If you find yourself justifying and rationalizing a behavior that other people think is wrong, and you're just bending and stretching Scripture to try to make it to where it's not wrong, there might need to be some, well, no, there does need to be some humility and say, Lord, what am I doing? And to get counsel and help to say, is this true? Am I really bending the truth here? Am I really trying to rationalize what is actually wrong? And there needs to be a humble heart that is contrite and trembling before God's Word, not using it in a manipulative way. So what is Jesus getting at here? We must be aware of the danger of foolish and sinful oaths. Turn with me to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, look at verse 6. won't read the whole story. We'll get to this later, but this is uh, John the Baptist's death with Herod. Matthew 14, verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. Verse 7. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now stop. Was that a foolish oath? He has... This young woman who's a relative of his, actually, perversely, she, dresses, she, she dances, no doubt, dressed and dancing provocatively before a bunch of drunk men, and the men are pleased by the dance. Herod wants to impress his guest. They, he can tell that they really enjoyed this dance, so he promises her, I'll give you whatever you want, basically up to half my kingdom. What do you want? I, I, I give you an oath. Whatever you want will be yours. That is a foolish oath. Verse 8, so the girl runs to her mother. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. 
You can see Matthew actually has a lot to say about the issue of oaths. Matthew 26. We all know this one, I'm sure, but let's read it together again. This is the night after Gethsemane when Jesus has been arrested and Peter has followed behind him into, a, into uh, the, the courtyard near the house where Jesus is being held. Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Now, pause there. That means he probably said something like, I swear to God, I do not know this man, Jesus. Verse 73. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you, the Galilean accent. Verse 74, then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When it says he began to curse and to swear, he was probably saying, may God curse me. I swear to God, I'm telling you the truth. I've never seen this man, Jesus. He invoked God's name, that's what oath-taking meant, and he called down a curse. If I'm lying, may God do such and such to me. That's the kind of thing he was saying. Cursing and swearing himself under God's name, I've never seen Jesus before. And as you know, in Luke's gospel, Luke's the only one to include that detail. When the rooster crows that last time and Peter's denied for the third time, Luke alone tells us the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter turned and made eye contact with the Lord in that moment. What must have been the expression on Jesus' face? What must have been the expression on Peter's face as he realizes what he's done and he flees out of the courtyard? And he goes out and he weeps bitterly, as right he should. He goes out and weeps bitterly because that is a horrific, horrific sin. At the moment of Jesus' greatest need and, and, and greatest trial, Peter does one of the great, great sins you can imagine in that very moment. You can turn back to Matthew 5. So what is Jesus getting at here? Instead of using elaborate systems of oath-taking, we must simply speak the truth. Just a, a massive verse for us as a church. You've, if you've been around, you've heard this verse before recently. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Then he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This is not merely a passage about avoiding lying. Certainly, we must avoid lying. But it is a glorious command that we're being pushed toward, which is that we should let our everyday speech be trustworthy. 
Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. We have the glorious privilege of being used by God so that our words can have the effect, can have eternal ramifications on the people around us. Just, just stop for a second. Are there words of insult that you have received that you can still remember from many, many years ago that have stuck deeply into your mind? Words of insult that you heard at some point in your life that you can remember many years later. You still have to maybe struggle with some of those things. Are there words of encouragement that you can still remember that someone gave you decades ago? And you look back and you say, wow, that was a turning point for me, what that person said to me. That conversation changed my life. What this person shared with me changed the trajectory of my life. Or th- there was a moment where I was unbelievably down. I was doubting. I was discouraged. I was anxious, depressed. I sat down with my friend. They shared with me truth, and it changed everything for that week or that month of my life because of the truth that they spoke. We have an incredible ability, a privilege We can be used by God as a channel of His grace to the people around us. Listen, Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up that it might give grace to those who hear. Now, Now, listen, here are the two avenues. I can use my mouth to give corruption to you. I can move you away from what's good and right and true. I can fill your mind with what is not right. I can distract you from what's important. I can tempt you to gossip by what I say. I can tempt you to complain by what I complain about. I can give you corrupting words. Or I can give grace with my words by what Christ does through me. I can give grace. Your words can be a conduit, a channel of God's grace to other people around you. If our words are trustworthy, Truthful, biblical, encouraging, God will channel His grace through us to the people around us. What effect do our words have? If I can be honest with you, it's easy at church to be more positive with our words, but when I'm tired and it's late and we're trying to get the kids ready for bed, I can have sharp words, okay? James says, don't let there be, you know, uh, fresh water and salt water coming from the same spring. Uh, We should not let blessing and cursing come from the same mouth. We should be consistent. And so let us think about how we can use our words to encourage and build up those around us. How about this? When we lie, not only is it a serious sin, it is, I'm going to use a strong word, it is imitating Satan when we give in to lying, because Jesus said to the, to the leaders, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When I lie, I am acting more like Satan than I am like God. When we speak the truth, we are reflecting God's truth-telling character. In John 16, Jesus calls the third person of the Trinity the Spirit of truth. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. We worship a God who 
is the source of what is true in this world. Now, I want to start moving towards the Lord's table. Our salvation rests entirely on the trustworthiness of God's Word. Imagine a world where God was untrustworthy and where God lied. Imagine not being able to take to the bank what He says in His Word. Imagine a world where Jesus is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. Imagine that. You would have no security about any of God's promises. You would not actually know for sure that everything was working together for good to make you more like Christ because God can't be trusted. But of course, God's Word is sure and steadfast. He is reliable, and we can trust what He has to say. What he has to say. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. And as Jerry reminded us earlier, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? God has proven that He keeps His Word. You say, how is that? He hasn't come back yet. How has He proven that He's kept His Word? And the answer is, He predicted many centuries before the birth of Jesus that He would send His Son, the, the Savior, the Messiah, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, son of David. He would suffer in our place for our sins. He would be forsaken by God the Father, crushed by God the Father, die in our place, that He would be buried in the rich tomb, borrowed from someone else. He would be raised again from the dead on the third day like Jonah coming out of the fish, and that He would proclaim forgiveness and salvation to all the world. And for many centuries, people waited. Israel waited. And finally, Christmas came. Jesus was born. The unthinkable happened. God had sent a Savior. Well, God would say, it's not unthinkable. This is what I told you. This is exactly what I promised. And God has kept His Word through Christ, and we know that God will keep His Word for us as well. In Romans chapter 15, it says this, for I tell you that Christ became a servant, it's referring to His death, Christ became a servant to the circumcised, the Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the, promise given, the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. And Hebrews 10 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. In Sunday school last hour, I can't help but just mentioning this again. In Sunday school, we, we were in the last chapters of the Bible, and we finished Revelation, and it is absolutely glorious to think about the last two chapters of Scripture. But here is what God has promised, the God who cannot lie. Hebrews says it's impossible for God to lie. He said, I thought God could do anything. He can't do anything that violates His nature. He's not going to violate His nature. He's not going to sin. He's not going to lie. And how, what, did, what did God promise that is the, the future for us as believers? Here's what God's promised. The curse one day that so marks this world through sin and fallenness and sickness and disease and death, by thorns we work the ground, the curse one day is going to be removed. Revelation says there will be no more curse. So whatever effects of the fall you're feeling this week in your life personally that causes grief and maybe even a sense of despair, don't despair. There is coming a day where the curse will be taken away from this world. All that is evil will be burned out of this planet, and God will renew this creation. Romans 8 says the creation itself will be set free. 
from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Physical ailments will no longer be part of your life. Death will not be something to dread in your future. It will be gone. Death itself will be destroyed. We will see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ in resurrected bodies on a renewed earth. There will be a new Jerusalem. God Himself will dwell with His people. He Himself will be their God, and we will be with Him as His people, and there will be no more night because God's glory will be the, the, the light of greater than the sun, and it will shine all day, every day. That is the future that we have, all because of what Christ has done for us. Turn, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as we think about the Lord's table, this table represents the promises of God finding their fulfillment in Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Look with me, starting at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let me, 26 we don't often focus on. Let me read that one more time. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So every time we come to this table, we look back, right? It's a time of remembrance. We remember Listen, Jesus never wants us to forget the cross. So He's built the cross into the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're all about His death and resurrection because He wants us never to forget. And so we're prone to forget. And we come forward. We we come forward mourning over our past failure. Even this past week, areas where we have not measured up to God's perfect standard. We come forward with grief. We come forward admitting that we have failed in some ways. We come forward desperately wanting to be more like Christ. We take these elements... As you know, these are not magical elements. They have no power in and of themselves, but we take them back to our seat, and as we remember what Christ has done, and as we participate in this meal, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until the day He comes. We know He's coming back. We know that this is a little down payment, a little picture of what He is coming to do in the future, guaranteed by His death and resurrection. And as we partake of these elements together, we corporately proclaim our trust in what He has done and what He is going to do in the future. If you are not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus, and I want to say, I say this every time, so maybe it just seems like something that is just said, but this is important. If you're not a believer, we would sincerely and seriously ask you to refrain from coming forward to take of these elements. We would ask you that you remain seated, that you talk to the Lord, speak to the Lord, and even trust Christ even right now in your seat if you do not yet know the Lord Jesus. If you do know the Lord and you are not walking in willful, unrepentant sin at this time, We would invite you to come forward. After I'm done praying, you can come forward, partake of the elements, and return to your seat, and then we will sing together in just a moment. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, as the hymn writer says, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word.'"
just to rest upon His promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I've proved Him, o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust Him, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that He is with me, will be with me to the end. Lord, it is true that even in our own experience, You have proven Yourself trustworthy over and over. You have been faithful to us. When we've begun to stray, You have drawn us and called us back to Yourself. You have continued to hold on to us and to be patient with us and to forgive us even when we struggle and stray. So I pray now as we come forward for these elements that You would remind us afresh of what has been done for us, that You sent Your Son to die a death that we deserve to die under Your judgment and who lived the life that we failed to live, a life of perfect righteousness so that we could turn from sin and trust in Christ and be truly saved by Him. pray this in Jesus' name.